1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you're using the Bibles under the seats, it can be found on page 959. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. <coughs> My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Casey. I'm one of uh, the pastors here at Free City. And I'm thirsty, apparently. Um, and if you're with us uh, for the first time, we uh, want you to feel really, really welcome. And we can catch you up a little bit just up to speed uh, that we are here uh, after this Sunday no more. So don't come here next week. We won't be here. Uh, we'll be back at Central, which right now... Like, there's a myriad of emotions in the room. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you work in kids, there's going to be more space uh, for us in Central. Uh, in the auditorium, there's more space. If you drive a car, there is less space. Um, and, uh, and then, like, every like, third week, you'll hear the same thing of, like, hey, park like Jesus. I know he didn't have a car, but he would not park his car. Like, he wouldn't park his donkey like you're parking your car. And you got to be kind to the neighbors because uh, we don't want to wear them out. Um, and so you're going to have to walk. And uh, if you don't have kids uh, or you're not physically um, or you're physically able, um, you should not park really close in a parking lot. Like, just shame on you. Uh, that's going to be something you'll hear from me a lot. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and then it's not nearly as comfortable. Um, you have to, if you're, if you're like over six feet, man, you hate that place. Um, if you're not, it's okay. Um, but so we'll be there next week. We're going to ask, uh, several of you, if you're able, um, to stay and help us load up and then unload over there. Um, and we want to do a good job of cleaning up. Billy Mills has been really, really great to us. Um, and so if this is your first time here, you're like, man, I just got suckered into all kinds of work. And you did. Um, but, um, man, we're really glad you're here. We're in like week three or four of walking through um, the epistle of First John, uh, where uh, John, uh, one of the disciples of Christ, the one who was called, the one whom Jesus loved, the beloved, um, who was always in the inner room, who always got to ask Jesus uh, intimate questions when he didn't understand, 
Um, he wrote the Gospel of John, and then he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John uh, to a church uh, that he didn't necessarily plant, but a church that he helped pastor, sometimes from afar. Uh, he also wrote the book of Revelation when he was exiled uh, because of his faith uh, to the island of Patmos. And so he actually penned a lot uh, to encourage believers. And what his main goal is to encourage a church that has been incredibly discouraged. You know, the, the roller coaster of life ha has affected them where they're now longing for solid ground. You know, my, uh, my youngest, Anna, she's five, she's tiny. Uh, I was getting her out of the bath and I was helping dry her off and helping her get dressed. And I'm sitting on the ground and she's standing up and she's looking at my head and she goes, Dad, your hair's growing. And I thought, you've always been my favorite. You know? <laughs> And then she goes, well, it's not really growing here, or here, or here. And then she goes, did you have cancer one day? You know, I was like, that is incredibly insensitive, and you are no longer my favorite, you know? Like an emotional roller coaster. Uh, you know, and you have to ask yourself, like, are you a roller coaster kind of person? You know, if you've ever been to Disney World, there's a lot of different kinds of roller coasters. Like, are you the kind of rider that wants to go on the Tower of Terror, where you go up, and you go up, and you've already watched YouTube videos, so you know at one point you are going to come down, and you go up, and you move around, and you see ghoulish ghosts, and like, that scares you a little bit, but what really scares you is your kids are really scared. You're like, man, they're going to get in bed with us tonight in the hotel, and so, I mean, you are like freaking out about that, and you know any moment you're going to come back down, but I mean, nothing can really prepare you for that, and then it happens, and your thought is, I'm not going to be I'm not going to be okay the rest of the day. Like, this is not okay. Like, are you that kind of roller coaster rider, or are you more like, you know, the carousel of progress roller coaster rider, where you walk in and it's air conditioned and you think, why haven't I been here all day? You sit on a padded seat that's slightly wet because other people were sweating and they sat up, but you don't care. And you sit there and robots talk to you and they sing to you at every time and you just move right. That's all you do. And then you get back on and there's no, there's no, there's no line to wait so you can do it again and again. Like what kind of rider are you? Like what do you want? And I don't know. I go back and forth. But I am definitely a flight of the avatar rider. Like if you haven't done that, oh my goodness, like, it is an incredible experience. Like, we, we had a fast pass, and we still, and I know they are un-American. Like, they made an elite class and a surf class, and I'm against them, but we had one, so we used it. And so, I mean, we still waited in line, and you have to go in there, and they have to take your DNA to pair you with the right avatar, and then you have to get paired with the right Banshee, because it's like a soul connection. I'm still connected to Banshee, you know? And so you have to wait and wait, and you finally get in, and you get in this room, and you look around, and there's like 15 people there, you're like, well, no wonder this took so long. Like, the engineers really messed up on this one. And you get on this, like, motorcycle thing, and they put a bar on your back. And you're kind of leaning forward, kind of a go-fast bike. And I was a little worried because Cruz was with me, with me, but he was, like, a couple bikes over. And so I was like, man, if he starts to freak out, I can't use my dad power like that. It's going to be okay. I can't use that for him. And so all of a sudden, like, the floors and ceilings, like they go away with the space-time continuum as you are paired with your banshee, ready to ride. 
And you realize it's not 15 people. There's like 15 groups of 15 people. And you're about to have this experience with like a couple hundred of your closest friends. And suddenly you start to fly. And I mean like, like wind is blowing your face. My son, Cruz, he starts yelling. Like he goes, yeah, woohoo, woohoo, I'm flying. And he does that for five minutes of the entire ride, the whole time. Like, I, it, it made my heart so happy. Like, I actually, I prayed a little bit. I was like, Jesus, please let banshees be real in heaven. I don't know if that's sacrilegious or not, but my soul is now paired to it. I, I feel like I'll be incomplete not without my banshee. But, like, it was this incredible, like, it was, I mean, you felt like you were flying. Like you felt like you were flying. But what happens after a ride like that, like you get off something that's been moving up and down and left and right. I mean, it's literally, been, it feels like you've been flying. I mean, you get off and you're longing for something. You don't exactly even know what you're longing until your feet touch it. You're longing for something to stand on that is solid. Something that is unmoving. You're longing for something that is stable, that's not gonna move on you anymore. And there's a little bit where First John is writing to a church. He says, you can know something that is solid, that is unmovable, that is stable, that is certain. There's even a little bit, like if you look at this text, like, like First John's a little bit of a roller coaster. I mean, and he's the apostle of love, so it's the roller coaster of love. Uh, but look at this. Like, just look at these phrases. Look at verse 1. It says, so you will not sin. Like right there, you're like, oh, I'm out. The bar feels a little high. But then it goes on, but if you do sin, and so you're like, I'm back in. Like this is back and forth. Finally, I can relate. Verse three, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Back out. Verse four, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. I feel further out. Verse six, walk in the same way Jesus did. Like I think that might be more than my... WWJD bracelet in middle school, verse seven. Then it says, it's an old commandment. Verse eight, it's a new commandment. Like we're back and forth. Verse eight through 11, it goes on and it says there's a light and there's darkness, there's hate, there's love, there's abiding and there's stumbling. Like it is up and down, back and forth. And yet the whole goal of this is something that you want more than anything. The whole goal of this is he says, not just that you can know, he says, Christian, you can know that you know. There can be an abiding witness that is both internal inside of you, but also external that can be tested and can be known. And he goes on to give us three tests right away. You know, the, the test is, you know, an obedience test, a love test, and then a faith test, like a doctrine test. And he starts to throw these at his church. He says, listen, you can know. You don't have to be on the roller coaster of, am I in or am I not? How does God think about me? Is he affectionate toward me? Is he proud of me? Does he think about me with kindness or does he shake his head and at best saying things like, oh, bless his heart. He says, you can know. He says, you can walk in this faith. He's talking to a group of Christians who've had leaders and friends, brothers and sisters, leave the faith. Their life feels scattered. 
They don't even know where they stand anymore. They, you know, the church has to feel like, you know, when people leave and move on, other people are left behind. People are leaving and moving on to something new, whether it's, you know, another venture that's God honoring or not. Other people are left behind with the shambles of what's behind to say, what did we do? What happened? And John says, the whole goal of what he's right is that you might know that you are secure in Jesus. Like you see that in verse 3? He says, you might know. I mean, he says, because of the gospel, you can reach out and grasp firm rails for life when life wants to toss you around. He's saying that because of the gospel, because of what Jesus says, you can stand on solid, unmoving ground while everything else seems to shift and be unsettled. He says you can have certainty, an unmoving witness that abides. He promises us something incredible. He holds out something that I need. And so, you know, when we look at this, we're not going to cover all the tests. Um, We're going to really just cover one test, the test of obedience. And we're really going to try to unpack this because at first, I mean, let's be honest, like a test of obedience, you're like, oh man, that is really discouraging. (laughs) I think it's actually really encouraging when we unpack it. We're going to ask two questions. And so first, what is possible? And what is possible is you can know that you know. Like he doesn't want to leave it up to, to, you know, to grabs that you can't know for all of it, you know, until you enter into eternity and then you're surprised. He says, Christian, you can know. And then the second thing is, how can I know? And that's actually the test of obedience. And we're going to focus on words that aren't necessarily in the text, but words that lead us to these to help us understand of treasuring, holding, and growing. Uh, But let me pray for us, and then we'll hop in and get to work. Father, Lord, this life is full of ups and downs. And we're not just talking about movement that I feel with my body. I'm talking about movement in my heart and my soul. I'm talking about Um, one moment feeling accepted and loved and the next moment feeling despised. I'm talking about moments that, you know, when we feel a part of something and we feel safe there and then we see it crumble and we feel exiled. And Lord, I'm thankful that the author of this knows exactly what it's like to feel exiled but close with the Lord away from everything he loves on a prison island, but close to the Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just help us. Um, I pray that you would bring to mind, Lord, I ask for prophecy inside of our heart, that you would bring to mind um, what you are saying to us, what you want to communicate. And Lord, it would exhume from the scriptures as the Holy Spirit makes those things true and alive in us. And we'd walk out understanding how do we exercise knowing and have firmness in our faith. So Jesus, we need help in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the first thing, the first question, what is possible? And uh, starting in verse 3, it says what's possible is knowing that you know. He's not just going to say to know. He's saying what is possible is you can be sure. Like you can have a certainty that you know. And like in our world, that's almost kind of offensive. Like when it comes to things of faith, 
Like our world kind of wants to pull on two opposite sides where it says, hey, that's a deeply personal thing for you to make it however you want it to be. But even in that, you can never know because it's very subjective. Where the other side of that is it treats faith as very, very objective. It's my culture. It's my heritage. It's the, it's the cultural things that we do, the celebrations that we have. And so all the measures, which I would say are not fully accurate measures, are outside of me, but they don't bring a certainty. And what Christianity offers, it says it's fully objective and fully subjective and in every way different in a sense that it covers all these things. That it can relate to you in a way that you can have an abiding witness of certainty in your soul as Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, communes with you and talks to you. But it's also incredibly objective in the sense that we start off and John says, let me tell you what the gospel is. I saw it. I experienced it. I heard it. It's the person of Jesus who entered history. It's an objective thing. And so when it says that you can know, that you can know, we need this. We need this because, like, I don't know about you, but, like, I see inconsistency in my actions, and what happens is it brings doubt. It erodes faith. Or, or, or I see like unreliable emotional disposition in my soul, like ups and downs and irritability. And what it does is it brings doubt. It preaches doubt about my faith or, or just the constant barrage of disappointment, of disappointment of just things in life that happen. And it's just life, but it seems like in the moments of disappointment that it happens, a voice whispers in your ear and says, see, just more evidence for why God doesn't love you. I mean, I just opened it this week. I just opened up a new uh, letter, and it was another bill from Quinn's broken arm from back in May. And I'm like, man, there are people that get paid that are like behind the scenes, that are behind, behind, behind the scenes. Like they're just somewhere thinking about like what my, my daughter broke her arm, and like we're paying. You know what I do? Like even it's silly because we're able to pay for that. And her arm's back. I mean, she can now stretch her arms out again. She's got hyperextended arms that freak me out every time I see them. And she can like, look, dad. And it is back the way it was. I mean, I thought if we were paying money, they ought to fix it, you know, keep it straight. But it is back the way it was. And so everything worked out. Two working arms. We couldn't be more happy, but we're still getting bills. And the way I combat that voice of, does God really love you? Is I'm like, hey, it's all God's money. If he wants to pay the guy behind, 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 everyone, that's fine. It's his money, you know. <laughs> Constant disappointment coming. And John says, you can know. Look at verse 3. It says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. Like that word, no, the Greek word, gnosko, it is in this letter 25 times. You can know, you can know, you can know. He, that 25 times in a small book, the, the repetition in the Bible, it is like the highlighter of, of, the, of, the, of the New Testament. When you see words repeated, it's supposed to clue us in on this is about how I can know. Like it is drawing attention to it in the same way that like when I text people certain words, I don't know how it happens, but like confetti appears on their screen. Like I don't know how it happens. I'm like, hey, congrats, explosion, confetti. I, I, I love it, but it highlights what's being said. And so when you see repetition like this, what the apostle John is trying to say, 
I want you to know that you can know 25 times. And when the Bible talks about knowing, it's not, it's not just talking about like knowing like certain facts. It's talking about something way more intimate. You know, it, it's not talking about like a multiple choice test that you can pass. It's talking about something more intimate. Like if we go back to Genesis 4, it says Adam knew Eve and a baby happened. Like that is not a multiple choice test, all right? Like it's talking about something more intimate, more experiential, something that draws you in, something that produces life, life-changing knowing. And so over and over when he is saying, you can know, you can know, you can know, he is talking something that is objective, that is outside of me, that can be testable. He's talking about something that is subjective, that is inside, that relates to my very soul. He's talking about something that enters in and brings life. He wants you to know that you can know. Look at verse 3 again, like when it says, and by this we know... And then it says, we have come to know him. It's the same word, but it's in different tenses. The first know, when it says, by this we know, it's in the present tense. And so that means, like when he's talking about this kind of knowing that we can have, it just means when it's present, it means it's experienced now and it grows and it builds. And so it's this idea of progressively building a knowledge that is gained day by day by experience. That means your day today can lend itself more evidence for why you know. But then, you know, the second note where it says, we have come to know him, it's in the perfect tense, which is a kind of past tense in the Greek language, but it's a past tense that happened, but has continual effect for today. And so it's saying, listen, there is a kind of knowing that can just grow and become a part of you, that abides with you. It's real, genuine, and it's comprehensive. You know, the, the, the comprehension of, of both of these knowings together, it's saying, in essence, if you look at verse 3, it says, by this thing, which we're going to pack what this thing is, by this thing, we are progressively growing in our assurance that we have come to know Jesus, and one day it will be fully full. That means you can know more today than you knew yesterday if we just know what to look for. And so... John is writing this letter to bring assurance. Now, if you have your Bible, like, you go over to John 3. We see this again in John 3, 1 John 3, verse 19. He uses the word again. He says, by this we shall know, same word, gnosko, that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. And so he says, there's a knowing that can stand up to the condemnation that's inside of your heart. And there's, there's another word that the biblical writers love to use. Where it says reassure, it's often translated as persuaded. The word is, is, is pitho, which is kind of fun to say, pitho. But it means like there is a reassurance, a persuading. That word is often used to describe what happens when you meet someone and you win them to be your friend. Like you were just acquaintances or maybe you were enemies, but you step into them and have an experience with them and you walk away arm in arm that we are now friendly toward one another. And so when he says we can know 
And our hearts can grow friendly with the fact that Jesus is for us, that he is with us, that he will hold on to us, and you are the family of God, and you have all of that at your access. And it's more than what you think and altogether different than what you would expect. He says your heart can be friendly to this. You know, Paul uses that same word, pitho, uh, in 2 Timothy 1.12, where he says, but I am not ashamed, for I know. And so that's actually a different no. It comes from the word, it's usually translated like, I see. And so he's saying, I have seen. I am not ashamed, for I see what I believe in. And he says, whom I have believed. So I am not ashamed, for I see whom I have believed. And I am convinced, same thing, like persuaded, like the kind of persuasion that brings friendship into a relationship that I am able uh, that he is able to guard until that day what he has been entrusted to me. Paul grew in an assurance, a certainty that his heart was now friendly toward the idea that God can hang on to him, that he is safe and secure. Paul, when he's writing to Romans, and just the great, man, Romans 8, it's, it might be my favorite chapter of the whole Bible. And part of it, because it speaks to me, I mean, look at verse 35, where he just says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake? We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? No. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am persuaded this fact has become friendly to my heart that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He seemed to know. He seemed to be certain when he faced all these things coming from the outside, persecution, hunger, thirst, poverty. He seemed to be certain. He seemed to be certain when he faced all these things on the inside. A condemning heart. That's how John describes it in 1 John 3. He seems to be certain. He seems to be certain that there is no power in heaven nor on earth that can open up the hand of God and pull him out. He seems to be certain. It seems to be something that has wrestled with his heart and his heart has made friends with it. It's reliable. He seemed to be certain. He seemed to be persuaded that he was safe and secure in the family of God no matter what comes. This is what John says is available to us. Certainty. Now, I know we haven't even covered many verses here. We're, we're going we're to cover more. Rand's going to pick up a little bit. Um, but like, just like this is how we read the Bible. We don't read the Bible just to gain information. We get, read the Bible to have this kind of knowing where it enters inside of me and it communes with me and it starts to wrestle with things in my heart. And it would just be this. Is there an area of your life that is a constant argument in your soul that says, I don't know. Can you really be sure? Like, we would just stop. Like, that would be an application place for me. Like, man, is there an area that I mess up or a condemning voice that is loud in my head all the time that says, surely a Christian who's been a Christian as long as you wouldn't still fill in the blank? Like, 
the way we would do is, we one, we'd repent. If that's a sin that I'm habitually going to, we'd hold it up. God, I'm sorry. I know it's wrong. Save me. Let me bring it into the light. That's going to really come out you know, next week when we pull back from what was a couple weeks ago, the light and loving our brothers and sisters. Save me. Help me walk in the light. Give me courage to confess this sin. But the other part with Lord, my heart's condemning and I need some pitho. I need to be persuaded. Would your Holy Spirit step in? That's how we would respond. And so that's the first question. He just wants to know that you can know. And then he's going to give us some diagnostic tests. And the first one is how can I know? And we're going to look at obedience. But we're going to look at it as the text really unpacks a treasuring, a holding, and a growing obedience. And so let's just look at this. In, ver- in verse 3, um, you see this word, keep his commandments. And so, like, this is, this is John throwing confetti, you know. This is John saying, listen, it's about this. So he says, keep my commandments. Verse 4, he says, keep his commandments. And so more confetti. Then he says, keep his word. That's another way. We're going to pack that a little bit. Then he says, abide in him. And then it says, walk in the same way. Confetti, confetti, confetti. And so he wants you to look at this is how you can know. There is a daily treasuring, a holding onto the promises, and a growing character that can stand as an objectable witness. That can stand as a witness of something changing inside of you. And so the first obey obeying is daily treasuring look at verse three and four it says and by this we have come we have we know that we have come to know him and then it says if we keep his commandments now keep once again it's in the present tense stressing a present daily uh, obedience that, that, that grows and that means that like what holds us in faith is not like saying, man, I had this experience back in high school and back in high school, like I was really good. Like I went to all the youth group stuff. And so I was really good then. Let's not talk about those college years. I mean, let's don't talk about that. Let's don't talk about now because now I'm just desperate because I'm still single and I don't want to be single. And so I don't know if I can hold on to obedience. He's not even talking about like this past experience. It has to be incredibly mystical and moving, you know, where like you can't even speak out loud. He's not talking about that. He's saying there can be a present daily witness in the disposition of your heart toward his commandments. Look at at verse four. He says it another way. He says, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Like once again, the keep is in the present tense indicating a daily thing that happens right now and a disposition toward toward his commandments i I know right now you're like hey i thought you were going to encourage me that's not real encouraging no it, it gets better keep looking at this the word keeps the word keeps it's used as someone to describe the way you would guard a treasure, something valuable. You know, when, when we read that and we say, keep his commandments, the first thing we think is just like perfect obedience that never messes up or doesn't have a wrong attitude. And we say, catch us, you know, check me out. But when it talks about this, it's talking about a keeping that holds on because you see it as beautiful and you see it as valuable. And so it says, is there a present day thing in your soul that says God's ways are beautiful? 
is there a present reality that when you read about how Jesus worked and what he did and what he taught and how he encountered people who had really, really messed up and how he stood the ground and yet he encouraged and he brought him in, that there wasn't a people group that he didn't embrace in friendship. When you see that, if you see that as beautiful, as attractive, and it's growing and it's more beautiful and more attractive, it says that is an external witness to you. That an internal change is growing up in and coming out of you because darkness is opposed to light until light enters in and starts to illuminate and change. And now the things of light are actually attractive. You may not be nailing it and doing an incredible job every moment of the day, but is there a growing treasuring, a keeping of God's commandments? And so he says, listen, one way that you can know that you are secure in salvation is this heart disposition of daily treasuring that is present. Those things are attractive to you now. You want them to be true. You know, matter of fact, that's a lot of your all's testimonies. You know, we're, we're going to do baptisms uh, on the 20th and then I think the 17th of, of November. And we, we, we already have too many to baptize uh, in one service because I preach long. And so we only have, we have to spread them out. But a lot of testimonies we hear, they start like this. Man, I, I, I came to church because whatever reason. And what happened was I know at that point I didn't really value the things of God. They didn't, they didn't enter into my decisions. I didn't really care. But over a period of time, something's changed. I, I, I want to know what the Bible says. I, I want to be around Christians even though I get offended and hurt and we have to walk through reconciliation, which was the assurance of faith. God has reconciled himself to you so you can now be reconciled to others. You see a growing change really in the temperament of what you see in Jesus. That is evidence of faith. And if you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized to celebrate that evidence of faith coming to maturity. And so the first is this obeying is this daily treasuring. Second, in verse 5, it says obeying is holding his promises. And so we see a word change. I already mentioned it, but in verse 5 it says, but whoever keeps his word, and so we see the same word there, keeps his word, but we have a different, uh, a different word to talk about these commandments. And now it, it is certainly possible and this does fit John, where he's just trying to say emphatically. So he uses a different word to describe it, where he's emphatically saying like, hey, the different you know, words that come from Jesus that are authoritative, that are commands that we need to follow, you know, it, it, it certainly could just be that. But it's a little bit of what follows that leans me to believe it's a little bit different. Like, like what follows where it says this, look at verse 5. And so it says, you know, but whoever keeps his word, in him, the one who keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected. And so like, like in this, like the word change, I think he's talking about one and the same thing in the sense that it's authoritative and it's from God. But I think he's talking about people who wait and hold upon the promises of God. And let's just be honest. Awaiting for the promises of God is really hard obedience. You know, in, in verse 5 at the end where it says, you know, in him truly 
the love of God is perfected. Like that word, it's in the passive voice and it literally perfected means brought to maturity. And so it says this, as you're waiting for the promises of God, as you hold on to them, they're not quite here yet. They're fully yours, but they haven't quite you know, come out where you can see them and tangibly touch them. As you're waiting in obedience for the promises of God, the love of God is being matured in your soul. It's growing. It's getting stronger. But here's the thing about maturity. It takes time. And when you're waiting on the promises of God for them to unfold, and maybe that's just a disposition in your soul. Maybe that's some sort of like, God, would you move in my family or my relationships? Or, or maybe it's, God, why do I keep stumbling? I need you to give me strength and courage and vulnerability. I mean, whatever that is, like waiting on those promises, it's hard to wait. And when you're waiting, it feels really, really long. And if you have never struggled with the idea of waiting to mature, you have never wrestled 89 pounds in middle school. There's nothing I could do just to grow. Like, I mean, I guess I could, like, H-E-H, you know, start rubbing on. I mean, I don't know. There's nothing I could do to grow. I just had to wait. And so I have all kinds of evidence for that waiting period that was really, really hard. They're called winter dance pictures. I, these winter dance pictures, all three year, you know, seventh year, eighth grade year, ninth grade year. I'm, I'm with my date and I'm like, you know, you know, prom pose picture, you know, where I'm like here, here. But like she is a foot taller than me. I'm holding her waist like right here. Like, hey, you know what I mean? It feels weird. There was nothing I could do but wait. It is hard obedience to be still and wait upon the Lord. Oftentimes when we think about obedience, we think about active moving. But so many times, especially when we're talking about the beautiful pleasures of the Lord, so many times it's just God saying, do you trust me to wait? Can you wait? Have I earned enough equity in your life that in this moment you are willing to wait? You know, before we, um, before we move on, you know, the daily uh, pushing for obedience of loving and treasuring uh, the ways of the Lord and the daily waiting and holding upon the promises of loving and treasuring the ways of the Lord, like this push and this pull that are really difficult. And all along the time, what's saying is, you're being acted upon, that the love of God is being perfected, that it is being maturing, it is maturing and growing in you. Obedience, when it follows love, is so much easier. You see, when you love someone, it's really easy to obey them. When you, when you look at someone and you love and you know the disposition of their heart and like you're like, man, I know they're for me. They're not against me. They don't want to harm me. Like it's really easy to trust in the in-between. You know, I, um, I remember, I have a reminder on my phone um, that reminds me of the, the day that I, I knew uh, I loved Kinsey. Um, yeah, I know. I, I, I'm not romantic, but it is one moment. I, I nailed it. Um, but I just, I, I remember, and so it reminds me, I mean, it, it's April 22nd, you know, and so what happened uh, was it was, it was, you know, Kinsey, I was in Weatherford, I was doing student ministry, she was still in college, and so she came to spend the weekend, and uh, 
we were there, and, you know, spring was coming, you know, so, I mean, you know, love was in the air, and so spring was happening, and so I'm in this quadplex, you know, where uh, I've got this little porch, and she's like, man, your porch is just kind of ugly. We got to put flowers on it, and I'm like, okay, you know, I mean, I, I, I had never thought, like, yeah, it needs some flowers, so we go buy a whiskey barrel, a half whiskey barrel, we go steal dirt from a new construction site, and then we get flowers, and we plant it there, and I'm like, oh, it is prettier, that's great, and they died because she wasn't there to water, but we planted them together, we, we followed that day, and, and, you know, and then we went, and like, well, let's, let's just make dinner, and so we make homemade pizza, it was the most expensive pizza I've ever put in my body, but we did it together, and then after that, she highlighted my hair. You know, I mean, it was incredible. I mean, it was, guys, 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 guys. It was early 2000s. It was different, all right? And so she highlighted my hair. And here's the deal. Like, my, the goal of all of these things, like, I, I attend you flowers aligned with my interest, but I assure you that flowers were in no way my interest. Or I could say homemade pizza, it aligned with my interest, but I assure that homemade pizza was in no way my interest. And my highlighted hair, I mean, that might have been my interest. I don't know. (laughs) But I remember walking away from that and just having this real simple thing. I don't really like any of those things. I loved doing them because of who I was with. You see, when you love someone the idea of pleasing them is really pleasing. And so what happens is the, the, the God starts to mature this in our heart. He wants to bring it to perfection. He wants it to grow inside of you. But there's some things that we can do. You see, when my love is waning for the Lord, it's because I'm not looking at what he has done or what he is doing. When my love is waning for the Lord, it's because I'm not in the scripture seeing he, how he responds to people just like me. Inconsistent, braggadocious, prideful people who want to spin things to fit themselves. How does he respond to those kind of people? He welcomes them back in. How does he respond to people like Peter who in the upper room as Jesus is about to be betrayed and he says, you're all going to betray me and everyone's like, oh man, not me. Peter stands up and he says, hey, these other chumps, they might run away because they're weenies, not me. I will die for you. And just hours later, hours later, Jesus has been arrested He's the closest disciple there. He and John, they're the closest one in the courtyards, warming their hands by a fire. And it says a little servant girl says, surely you're one of his disciples. And he denies him. Again, surely you're Galilean. Surely you're one of his. He denies him. And he denies him again. And the prophecy of what Jesus said, you're going to deny me before the rooster crows, all came together and it broke him. See, he came to the end of his strength and he found what was lacking and it broke him. And he's like, man, I don't have enough to hold this relationship together. If it's up to me, I'm doomed. But then after the resurrection, up on the beach, Jesus says to Peter, hey, listen, do you love me? He says, yes, I love you. And feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes. One, do you love me for every failure? And he basically, you know, before that even happened, he said, hey, you're going to fall away. But when you turn back, when you turn back, strengthen the brothers. 
See, that's an incredible love that is bestowed on inconsistent people who are going to fail you, and yet you're still saying, but I still have purpose. There's still need. You can step in this. I don't need you. There's nothing that I can't do without you, but I bring you in to use you. You have purpose and value because I have bestowed my love upon you. See, when you're, if you look back to that kind of love, it starts to captivate your heart. It starts to grow up obedience will follow because it is pleasing to please someone who you love. And so we look at two different ways that obedience can come out. One is a, is a daily doing, like, like it's a daily growing that I am actually for what God is for. Like I, I didn't used to be, but I'm actually starting to treasure it. The other is like a holding on to the promise. It's a waiting. I'm waiting for God because I know whatever he has for me because of who he is, it's going to be better. And then he says the culmination of all of that and of this maturing love for God that happens in you, upon you, as you wait, as you do, it becomes a habitual character that you are changed. Look at the end of verse 5. It says, by this we may know that we are in him. And so by this is pointing forward. There's something happening that you can know. And it says, whoever says uh, he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, abiding and walking. They're portraying a pattern of behavior that is establishing a character. Certainly there will be times that you will stumble and you will mess up. But over time, as I'm treasuring the ways of God, as I'm waiting upon the promises of God, over time as that love of, for God is matured in my life, over time there's a noticeable trajectory of character growth. There's a noticeable change. I know that it can be so discouraging to struggle with the same kinds of sins over and over and over. I know what it's like to hear an accusing voice in your soul that says in a surly voice, surely someone who's been a Christian as long as you wouldn't still fill in the blank, wouldn't still feel this way, wouldn't still do this, wouldn't still snap like this. Surely someone wouldn't still try to contort everything in their life to make much of them. Surely someone who's been a Christian as long as you. I know. But this is objectable evidence. Evidence that is outside of you. Objectable evidence of a growing change. Like, have you grown in seeing that God's ways are more valuable? Do you treasure them more today than you did a year ago? That is a diagnostic test that can give you a knowing. Have you grown in character, a more sustainable pattern of obedience? That is a diagnostic test that can give you information and fuel for knowing. Have you grown in a love for Jesus and his ways? Like you started out and you didn't care anything about Jesus' ways, and now there's just a trusting abiding. Are you different than you were a year ago? You see, like, I, I think sometimes we get really frustrated because, like, man, why are my, my doubts or my heart problems or my sin problems or my motivation problems, why aren't they just, like, wiped away? Sometimes God does that. Usually he does it. And maybe he doesn't do it because sin is real and it is deeper and more insidious than you could ever dream of. And these things take time to uproot. 
Maybe it's because he works with people. But he says these can be objectable, not objectable, objectable things in your life that can be diagnostically tested to see change. And so as we close, it's just really important that I warn you about two different kinds of obedience. You see, you can obey out of fear or pride, believing that God's love is conditional. Believing that when, when you obey more, God loves you more, and he's more excited to see you. And when you fail, you know, he doesn't really want to see you. And ultimately, you need to know this insults the love of God. This makes God love fickle like your love is fickle. This makes God like ever, you know, coming back and forward. This really insults the character of God and is really projecting your love upon him. See, if you obey out of fear or superiority to others, and that's your motivation for obeying, it will stretch you and stretch you and stretch you until it breaks you and crushes all the people around you. The breaking is usually a slow descent into bitterness. And it can be evidenced oftentimes in snapping anger. Or you can grow in obedience out of certainty that God loves you. And you can be moved by that love to obedience. This happens as we look more and more to the gospel. This happens as we study the cross. You know, when I talked about John, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 8, at the very beginning, talking about a knowing. You know, it, it, it preaches to my soul because there seems to be something inside of Paul's life where he says, man, I know, I know tribulation comes, but I know. You know, uh, you know, pain comes, but, but I know. Opposition comes, but, but I know. Like doubt in my heart is still there, but, but I just know. He says over and over, like powers from heaven can come, Satan himself, but I know. And you're like, Paul, what are you looking at? And he tells us. You know, if we read all of, you know, if we read Romans together as it's unpacking, he starts with the sin problem, this problem with righteousness that we need, and he condemns all of us to have this sin problem. But then he talks about this free gift that comes, and he talks about a righteousness that comes from Jesus, and then he talks about how that righteousness comes to us, and it comes because Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, put on flesh, he stepped into life, and he atoned. He went to the cross and he stayed. He died upon the cross. And I think, I don't know, I think Paul was looking at it and he looks at Jesus upon the cross and he says, he stayed, but he didn't have to. I think he ties it all together and he says, listen, in the garden, when, when Peter pulls out the sword and cuts the dude's ear off because Peter was still like, no, no, these chumps will walk away, but I won't. And Jesus heals that dude, says, put that thing away. He says, could I not call to my father? And he sent angel warriors after angel warriors. That was still true on the cross. Jesus didn't get to a place on the cross like you know, past the point of no return. I'm in too deep. I can't stop. He didn't get to a place where he said, you know, oh my gosh, now I'm really, really committed. At any time he could have said, they're not worth it. At any time he could have said, God, let's just start all over. 
At any time, he could have said, this just isn't worth it. But he didn't. He stayed. As the wrath of God. We talked about that. The propitiation. Propitiation. Someone corrected me on that. The propitiation. The wrath of God fell upon him. And he stayed until your salvation was complete. And it's not just enough for your salvation. It's enough for the entire world. Do you remember that? Any sin, it's enough. He looked at the cross and it built confidence. What, what now are you going to do? What attitude is going to persist in your life that he's going to be like, oh, I'm out now? He was convinced. And now right now, if you're like, gosh, man, that makes sense. There has been growth. That's me. Uh, you know, what do I focus on? I mean, follow the spirit of the Lord. Where do you find disdain? Where do you find lack of assurance? And start to read the scripture and say, man, talk to me about this. Confess those things to your city group. Confess those things to your life transformation group. Confess those things to other believers. They might grow in the light and the darkness might fade away. But if you're right now and you're saying, man, what is this obedience that I need to do? I don't think I have that. John tells you where to start. Listen to this. In John, 1 John Chapter 3, verse 23. He says, And this is his commandment. The commandment that you need to start with. The commandment that changes everything. And this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. If you want to know where all of this starts, it starts in a place where you stand on a line. You say, I believe Jesus to be who he said he was. I believe Jesus not to be a mere prophet who taught us good things we should do. I believe Jesus to be the son of God who died for my sins and rose again. And I'm going to stand on that. I might still have some doubts. I might still have some questions, but I'm going to stand my life on that. That's where we start. And that's where everything starts. And then you have the great promises of scripture that say this. Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He won't stop. It won't be like my renovation projects that get half done and then you're like, oh, I'll get around to it next winter. It won't be like that. He will keep working until it is accomplished. And what he promises is beauty. And 1 Corinthians 15, when it talks about, you know, this baptism and death and the new body, I mean, Gosh, in this incredible way, Paul starts to just go crazy where he says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. You have no idea what awaits you. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I pray as we uh, walk to communion, like we would feel that. So in heaven, what I have is complete. It is done. It is seated. It is safe. It is secure. Nothing can take me away from it. It is settled because of what Jesus has done. But on earth, man, there's still this battle that we'll really unpack next week of this light infiltrating the darkness of both this world and also my heart. It's still not fully done. In the waiting of the holding onto the promises of God, does he have enough equity? Is his character, has he done enough that he would earn your waiting? See, even in the waiting, if you're a Christian, 
uh, we invite you to the table. Even in the waiting, we're invited in. It's not a waiting that says fix it and then come in. It's a waiting that says bring it all here, put it on the table and unpack it. And so we try to remind ourselves of that every week by taking communion. The way we take communion is we start on the bread side and we tear a piece of bread away and then we dip it into the wine um, or the grape juice. The wine can be found in the stoneware, the grape juice in the glassware. We have stations for communion up at the front and we have a station in the back. And these are tangible movements for us that we just remember, man, we bring it. We just bring it all with us and we just put it at the table and we say, God, I need you to help me unpack this. Father, I pray that you give us discernment. Uh, for others of us, like this is something I want to be a really regular thing in our church. Others of us, like if there's just something that's really pressing on your heart, it's an area that's just hard for obedience, it's hard to wait, or it's an area that's hard to be presently treasuring enough to bring obedience, like just ask someone to pray for you. You can do that in the, in the seats, or we'll have people in the back who just want to pray for you. They have lanyards on, and they need to know as much or as little, and they're going to pray boldly. They're there because they believe in the power of prayer. They're going to pray boldly that light would infiltrate that place of darkness or uncertainty and there would be illumination. There would be a knowing that isn't just the multiple choice test. It's the knowing that produces life. They want to pray for you. Jesus, we need you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready.